Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we're attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance Team. And today we're going to go through an issue related to open enrollment. Since that's the time of year that we're in, we thought it would be good to touch on some hot issues as it relates to open enrollment. So, Chase, start us out. Yeah, so lots to consider as you go through open enrollment, lots of compliance things. We're going to hit on about four today that we've kind of found is the most troublesome and areas where you can make some easy changes to stay compliant. But the number one thing that we wanted to talk about today is documenting your offers of coverage, making sure that there's proof that you as an employer offer coverage to an employee who is otherwise eligible, or we'll talk about the employer mandate who is full-time, um, and, and making sure that those employees have a meaningful opportunity to enroll in or deny your coverage. So why, why would you say that that's your number one item? Yeah, two reasons for that. The first is the employer mandate. Um, this is the ACA requirement for larger employers to uh, identify who is full-time in their employee population to offer them coverage and make sure that coverage is affordable. Full-time is 30 hours per week um, on average, and the this rule is still effective. The IRS is still enforcing it. We're still seeing letters coming from the IRS to employers on whether the employer met those obligations and on whether they reported on it. And we'll talk about reporting in a little bit here, why it's important to document for the reporting, but that's your 1095Cs usually. Right. The second reason is more of an employee relations with a little bit of a compliance twist to it, but you want happy employees. You don't want misunderstandings coming back to bite you. So you want it to be very clear in confirming what the employee was offered and what they elected. That way, employees feel like the messaging and the options were very clear during open enrollment. They don't come back later and claim otherwise. We've seen situations where communications weren't clear. Those led to misunderstandings and problems later in the year gets much more difficult to fix later than earlier. Uh, but the compliance twist actually relates to Section 125. That's going to come into play anytime you allow employees to pay premiums pre-tax to contribute to an FSA. That's most employers. But Section 125 says that you can't allow employees to change their elections mid-year unless there's some type of qualifying event. Think about a marriage, a change in employment situation, a birth or adoption of a baby. That Those type of qualifying events, sure, you can make a change, but in most instances, you cannot um, elections are really in place for that 12-month plan year following your open enrollment period. And employees can't just come to you, say they've changed their mind on their elections, and, and make changes. So communicating that rule up front is very important, helping employees understand what that means. Now, when there's clear evidence of a mistake, the IRS allows changes to correct the mistake. So it's not like we're saying there's no chance to change. If there was clear evidence of an administrative error, someone was enrolled in the wrong coverage or the wrong dollar amounts are being withheld, it's okay to correct that error. Uh, but that's different than an employee changing their mind or coming to the employer mid-year after open enrollment and saying, hey, I didn't understand this, or I realized my situation wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, those changes are generally not mistakes. They're just uh, misunderstandings, not understanding what the election uh, is. So if open enrollment materials are clear and concise, and it's well documented that the employee had the opportunity to waive or enroll, then those misunderstandings down the road are minimized. 
uh, you don't get into these he said, she said type of situations, the employer has much more proof documentation. Well, along those lines, does the employer mandate or Section 125 tell you how it has to be documented? No, that's the can sometimes be the frustrating part. Document this, but we're not going to say how to. Um, that might be too easy. So it just comes down to reasonable documentation, showing processes that open enrollment was actually held, uh, open enrollment meetings for employees, emails or other mailings out to employees announcing changes to the plan designs, the time periods for open enrollment, having an online portal through which employees have to log in and elect or waive all coverage options, and then having uh, the Ben admin vendor or the administrator through their system track which employees were in there and making those elections. Um, if it's paper enrollment, having the employee acknowledge and sign that they are waiving coverage, that's huge. If the IRS later comes back with a penalty letter, having that signed waiver could be the difference between a $0 penalty and a, and a massive penalty. Right. So anything the employer can use to document electronically or on, or on paper, and then hanging it onto it, making sure it's stored somewhere where you can access it. Most record-keeping um, rules under ERISA say you should keep records for six to eight years. That's consistent with IRS on the employer mandate as well. There is some lag time there between when the offer and the reporting year occurs and when the IRS actually gets around to enforcement. That's around two to three years. We're just now seeing 2017 penalty letters. Um, well, I mentioned reporting earlier. That's a little bit of a, a lag as well. And another reason to make sure you have your record-keeping procedures in place is open enrollment, for example, for the 2020 year may be occurring now, but you wouldn't report on 1095C about those offers of coverage, any waivers and enrollment for the 2020 plan year until January or February of 2021. So just maintaining records to complete those reports means that you as an employer need to have some type of record-keeping policy or procedure in place. And we have really seen that come up quite a bit over the last few years. So um, Right. And we've seen employers who did well with record keeping and were able to stave off the IRS. And we've seen employers who didn't do well and didn't fare so well with the IRS. So it is a big difference. Another best practice would be to review employee elections between election time and the beginning of the plan year. You have that time to administratively get things squared away. Um, in some instances, we've seen employers catch errors during that period, and that leaves them time to correct the error. I mentioned earlier, you cannot make changes during the plan year, but you could make changes prior to the beginning of the plan year and make sure everything's squared away before you get started on the plan year. Well, and that brings up a great question related to open enrollment and election documentation and the next hot issue, which is really HSA eligibility. So take us through that. Yeah, this one's a bit tricky, but it plays into that idea that perhaps clear communication and then avoiding or double checking during open enrollment can really help out. But We've seen situations arise where employees were allowed somehow to enroll in coverage that was disqualifying them from an HSA, and that created problems down the road with over-contribution to the HSA for the employee. But as far as employers are concerned, um, they shouldn't allow employees to enroll in non-high deductible coverage and still elect to contribute to an HSA. So reviewing options available to employees, the employer's responsibility is really only over their own offerings, just making sure that they're not allowing employees or enrolling employees in a HSA plan and also enrolling them in a general purpose FSA or an HRA, for example. It's not like the employer is tasked with the obligation to worry about all other spheres of influence or other places the employee could get coverage. 
But the employer can be very helpful in educating employees on HSA eligibility, and the employer has to be very aware that most HSA-related questions are probably coming back their way because these are their employees. Right. So being able to understand um, how to respond to those, what does the employee need to do if there is a conflict and they were ineligible, distributing those amounts out of the HSA before the following uh, April 15th, which is sort of the deadline for the individual's tax year, um, to get rid of that excess contribution and not have a tax penalty. Um, so employers should understand the rules and eligibility for HSAs and should be able to tell employees the basics. So administratively, making sure that the online admin system doesn't have cracks that could allow someone to enroll in the disqualifying coverage and still enroll and get into those HSA eligibility and contribution issues. Right. I mean, it seems like HSA education, there can never be enough of it. There's always right. questions on HSAs and always issues, it seems like, that arise with um, ineligibility for HSA contributions. But right. if we move on to the third item, you mentioned that um, employees that you may forget about, so those you can't see or who aren't immediately present. So what are you talking about here? We'll start off with remote workers. That's one that you could potentially forget about. About. They're off working from home in a different state or in a different part of the city or even in a different office. Um, so making sure you remember remote workers. Um, two types of employees that may not be around or reacting as quickly would be uh, COBRA enrollees or employees that are out on an FMLA or state protected leave. They usually have open enrollment rights the same as if they were an active employee. Those are protections under those state leave laws or under FMLA that say, hey, if you're out on one of these leaves, you still get to do everything that you could have done as an, as an active employee, including change your elections at open enrollment. So making sure those individuals receive open enrollment materials and have that same meaningful opportunity to enroll, that's huge. The last bucket of employees that sometimes are forgotten are retirees. This one depends more on whether the employer is offering retiree coverage and how that's structured, but it's the same idea. You have a retiree who's not in your office every day, may not be scheduled to come to your open enrollment meetings, making sure they get that same information and the same opportunity to enroll. Right. So, so talking about materials just generally, and there are so many compliance requirements as it relates to notices, what should employers think about when it, when it pertains to notices and open enrollment? Yeah, big deal here. You want to make sure that you're providing the correct notices at the correct times, and one of those times is during open enrollment each year. Um, the notices that we want to hit on today really quickly include the CHIP notice, that's the Children's Health Insurance Program notice, letting employees know that there's a potential help for child uh, coverage. Uh, that notice changes every year and should be included in open enrollment guides. Um, the SBC is another obvious one that comes from the carrier in most instances. That's the summary of benefits and coverage meant to help explain what benefits are, how deductibles work, how coinsurance works. Those go out at open enrollment. Work with your carrier on that. Uh, the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act is another WICRA notice. That one should go out. A Part D disclosure, that's related to Medicare Part D. That one is actually has to be filed with CMS within 60 days of the plan year, so that's a little bit after an open enrollment. Another notice has to go to Part D entitled individuals or eligible individuals. The last one is the wellness program. 
if you are sponsoring any type of wellness program, um, you need to review this notice requirement. The idea is that if you're tying your reward from your wellness program to some type of health factor, a smoker surcharge is the most obvious example, you have to let employees know about the availability of a reasonable alternative standard. In other words, they can get the same reward if they sit through a smoking cessation program. Boy, that's um, one that we could do a whole podcast on. Yes, we will definitely tackle that in a future <laughs> one, but that notice is out there. And even if you're just doing an, a health risk assessment or a, a biometric screening, something like that, there's another notice that the EEOC puts out there under a different uh, set of rules related to the ADA that also has a notice requirement. So if you're doing any of that, review and see which uh, wellness notice needs to go out. Okay, so let's tie up the notices and, and talk about how you deliver them because we always get questions on electronic delivery. Can they just post it on the internet and be done with it? Yeah, so we get this question all the time and it would be fantastic if employers could just dump the notices out on the internet and say, go get them. But that is technically not enough under the DOL's electronic disclosure rules. Um, for electronic delivery, you really, uh, the, most employers think of it as email delivery. You can do that as long as the employee has email access or computer access is a big part of their job, right? For those of us who sit in the office most of the day, we're staring at a computer or we have email on our phones. Email is a big part of our job. Our employer can send us a notice electronically. So give us an example of some employers where it wouldn't be a big part of their job that you have seen come through as questions? Yeah, absolutely. So um, landscaping type of employers, uh, hotel workers, factory workers, truck drivers, this type of employee may not be online all the time, right? They don't have, maybe they don't even have a work email address. They're just there, they're working. Fast food workers, so I've seen that a lot. Absolutely. Retail workers, um, any of those could fall into that. In that instance, the employer needs to take another step if they want to deliver electronically. They have to get approval from that employee from a separate email. So think of your Gmail account. You would send that uh, an email to your employer through Gmail saying it's okay to send me plan-related materials, and then the employer is okay to send the email with uh, the notice. And I would say that many employers don't want to do a bifurcated approach. And, and so they'll just choose if they don't have that, the situation where employees utilize their computer on, a, on an ongoing basis, that they'll just send them all out by in print. Right. And that's the default. You can always send it printed. You can always send it by mail. Now, if you decide to send by email, there are three quick things to put in the email. First is that it's a very important plan-related notice. Second, that a paper copy is available. And third, how to access that paper copy. What's the procedure to request that? So that's important. But when it comes to posting on the intranet, you still have to send a notice to the employee either by paper or by electronics saying it's available on the intranet and those three things I just mentioned with importance and the availability of a paper copy. So most employers choose to just send the notice because that way they're checking all of the boxes. We already sent the notice and also as a safety uh, outlet, we're going to post it on the internet. It'll be out there. Okay. So there was recently some a notice that there were some new electronic delivery um, regulations and rules. So do we, does any of that apply to health plans? Yeah. So last week, um, the DOL published some rules on the retirement side relating to electronic delivery. They announced this uh, new safe harbor called Notice and Access. And it's getting kind of to the idea that we talked about of posting something on the internet, but making sure that employees have notice of that and how to access it. Those rules, we're not going to go into them on, in detail here other than to say that they are not applicable on the health and welfare side. In the notice of rules put out by the DOL, they specifically mentioned that 
they don't apply on the health and welfare side, but that the DOL is considering comments and trying to figure out how this might work on the health and welfare side. So if you've heard about those rules in the last week or so, they're great on the retirement side. We are going to tackle those in our compliance corner uh, newsletter, and we'll probably also tackle it on a podcast for the retirement world. Uh, but not, no impact on the health and welfare side for now. All right, Chase. Well, thank you for walking through open enrollment. It's very timely. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. All right. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. 